Thank you everybody for coming. It's great to see you. And um, yeah, everyone's looking very summery and slightly overheated. But uh, as I was just chatting through with someone, it's only going to get worse, isn't it? So we need to tell ourselves it's nice and cool at the moment. Um, so we're here for RBT, um, in case you've come to the wrong meeting. We have been uh, trying to read First Samuel. So uh, just to say at the outset, don't worry at all if you haven't read any of it or you've only read some of it. Um, it's great to have you with us. And uh, it'll be great to dive into this book of the Bible together. Uh, it's kind of, I think, I was thinking this week, it's probably one of my favourite Old Testament, at least narrative books. I think the more and more I read it, the more and more riches seem to come forth from it. So I'm, I'm excited. I hope you are as well. Why don't we pray? Uh, then, obviously, as quickly as possible, we're going to break into groups. The bulk of the evening is going to be spent sharing together the things that we've unearthed in God's word. But I'll do a bit of a sort of probably a 15 minute intro as well, uh, as we often do with RBT, just to kind of um, whet our appetites, point us in the right direction. But let's begin by praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here this evening. Lord, you have led us to your son, into your church. Lord, you have made us members of your family. And Lord, it is our joy every time we get to come together, together as believers, and dive into your word. Lord, we thank you that you feed us daily through the riches of your word. We thank you for the things that you've revealed to us through 1 Samuel already, as we've read it in our own time. Lord, we pray now that you'd bless our conversations together. Uh, Lord, may the things that we've seen be multiplied. multiplied. May the encouragements uh, increase more and more as we fellowship with one another around this word. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Okay, so a bit of an intro. Uh, and just to say from the outset, I'm not going to do like a, sometimes we'll do a, a real kind of overview from start to finish. I'm not going to do that this evening, but just want to pick up on a few uh, particular highlights. And I guess to begin with, if you had to sum up the theme of 1 Samuel in a single sentence, one way to do it would be to say, it's all about our need for a king. It's all about our need for a king. Uh, maybe you noticed that as you were reading through it yourself. It's also clear when uh, you consider that in the Hebrew Bible, the, the books of the Old Testament are in a bit of a different order. And 1 Samuel actually immediately follows Judges. So the last thing you read before you begin 1 Samuel 1 verse 1 is Judges 21 verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, so the book of 1 and 2 Samuel is originally one book. Uh, it's been split into two, but the book of Samuel is the beginning of the solution and the answer to that problem. A king is needed in Israel. But that also begs the question, what kind of king? What kind of king do they need? That's the dilemma of this book. What kind of king do human beings, and especially God's people, actually need? Because not just any king will do. And in fact, all of the, uh, we did RBT and Judges some time back, maybe you've read it more recently, all of the horrific messiness of sin and moral anarchy that goes on in that book isn't in one sense due to their lack of a king, it's down to their not wanting God to be their king. And over and over again, they reject God as their king. That's really why at the end of Judges, the people of God are kingless and they're all doing what seems right in their own eyes. That's, that's what sets up 
and drives the storyline and the drama that follows in the book of Samuel. And as you'll have seen, if you've read it, it doesn't get off to an especially good start. Early on, around chapter 8, Israel demands that Samuel should find them a king, but they want a king just like those that the other nations have. It's yet another sinful and foolish rejection of God as their king. Uh, Samuel sees what's going on, God sees what's going on, but God gives them what they ask for. He gives them Saul, a king who looks very impressive. He looks like the kings of other nations, and like the other nations' kings, he also mistreats and exploits the people just as they do. And so God giving them Saul is, is really kind of some form of judgment on them. He doesn't spare them from their folly, the folly of their sin. And yet we see him also simultaneously in the background, already working mercifully behind the scenes, preparing for them a very different kind of king as well. A king not like those of the nations, but a man after God's own heart, David. David is the king they really need. Hopefully we got that as we've been reading through this book. And David is, of course, also a shadow and a pointer towards the even greater and more perfect king to come, the ultimate king that God has been preparing behind the scenes, actually, since before the foundation of the world. I'm sure you know which king I'm talking about. So this, this is really a book about three main human characters, Samuel, Saul, and David, and then ultimately it's about Jesus. And then I think there's a few different ways you could divide up the book. I personally like the, um, the kind of very simple character-focused breakdown that I've included on your sheets. And, and let me just apologize this evening for the simplicity of the handout. Uh, there's various reasons for that, but it's practically the only thing I've given you before the discussion questions. But I, like, I really like this um, little breakdown. It's from Dale Ralph Davis. And he just points out how the first seven chapters are primarily focused on the rise of Samuel, a prophet from God's grace, he calls it. The next seven, on the rise of Saul, he's a king in God's place. And then the last 17 chapters, on the rise of David, he's a man after God's heart. Now, as I say, I'm not going to attempt to give a comprehensive overview this evening. I know many of you have been reading it and will have seen far more in it than I could possibly summarize right now. We want to get into these discussion groups to talk about that. So the only thing I want to do before we break into those groups is draw your attention to the introductory prayer in chapter 2. That's, it's Hannah's prayer. Because Hannah's prayer in chapter 2 very much introduces the themes that follow throughout the book. And um, I'm told, and I apologise if I got, haven't got, quite got this right, if anyone's an expert on classical music or opera, you can correct me. But I think I'm right in saying... That in classical music, especially operas, the, the overture that plays at the start often introduces and foreshadows all of the major themes that will follow later in that symphony, in that opera. And Hannah's prayer is like the overture to First and Second Samuel. It's, it's the whole symphony in miniature right there at the beginning in chapter 2. And the big theme it foreshadows is that of dramatic divine reversals dramatic divine reversals that's what hannah's prayer is is full of and what the book is full of so hannah prays about god bringing low the proud and raising up the humble of the full going hungry and the hungry being filled 
of the bows of the mighty being broken, but the feeble binding on strength, of the fruitful becoming barren and the barren becoming fruitful. Tim Chester goes as far as to say that Hannah's prayer is the key to interpreting the whole story of First and Second Samuel. That's why I thought it'd be helpful for us to spend a little bit of time focusing on it. And so I just want to tease out now two of those clearest reversal themes before we break into our groups and before we talk more about what we found. The first is a height reversal and the second is a strength reversal. So a height reversal and then a strength reversal. It's the only two things that I want to talk about. First of all, there's this theme of a height reversal. So Hannah's prayer, chapter two, verse seven, she says, the Lord brings low and he exalts. And I wonder if you might have picked up as you were reading through the book, this recurring theme of height and stature. The height and the stature of different people is repeatedly drawn attention to. Uh, so the first time we meet Saul, we're told that he's taller than any of the other people. He's head and shoulders literally above all the rest. And yet at the end of 1 Samuel, this, this tall man is fallen on Mount, Mount Gilboa. And the refrain of David's lament for Saul is, how the mighty have fallen. When Samuel first goes to meet Jesse's sons, he sees Eliab, the oldest and tallest son. And even Samuel thinks to himself, this has got to be the king. This is the one that God sent me to anoint. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then in contrast, we're introduced, of course, to David, who is described as the youngest or the smallest of Jesse's sons. He's so small, in fact, that his father doesn't even think to bring him into the lineup. He cannot imagine how such a small boy and unimpressive boy could be king. And yet at the end of David's life, David sings the same as Hannah did, you exalted me above my foes. And then midway between those two events, the, the start and the finish, of course, we get the kind of um, what seems like the central climactic story, David and Goliath. We see the small shepherd boy going up against a giant Philistine while tall Saul is cowering in the background behind him in the distance. And then Goliath, the tallest man of all, is brought low as he falls to the ground, stone cold, dead. Now, the point of all of this is not, just to be clear, that the Lord literally favours short people over tall people, or at least that's what I'm sticking with this evening. <laughs> but the point is that he brings down the proud and the lofty, those who, Hannah says, talk very proudly of themselves, and he raises up the humble and lowly of heart, those who look not to themselves, but to God and trust and follow him. That's, that's what Hannah's prayer recognizes and gives thanks for. David is a taste of that special kind of king, and Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that kind of king. He's one who promises that the favor of God is upon him, and his yoke is easy for those who follow him, because he himself is a gentle and lowly king. The Lord brings low and he exalts. That's the first kind of a reversal theme in Hannah's prayer, the height reversal. And the second one, the final one I want to draw attention to, is a reversal of strength. There's a strength reversal. So she prays in verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. 
And repeatedly throughout this book, we see the humanly weak and vastly outnumbered prevailing in the Lord's strength. And, and you can maybe think of, we can talk about later, many episodes with Jonathan, David, and even sometimes Saul, where they go out small of number and they overcome a mighty number that stand against them. But nowhere more so do we see this strength reversal than when David stands before the giant champion Goliath. And David tells him straight, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. The battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. Just as Hannah prays, for not by might shall a man prevail. David refuses, doesn't he, to go against Goliath wearing Saul's armor. I guess in part because it doesn't fit anyway. But, but also he knows earthly rulers trust in armor and weapons and their own might. But David stands in contrast. His trust is not in armor, but in the Lord himself. And speaking of armour, the, the writer of 1 Samuel goes out of his way to draw attention to the giant Goliath's armour. Uh, he spends, I think, three whole verses talking about Goliath's armour. Goliath is armed, we're told, with a coat of mail, which would have literally looked like metal scales, scale armour. So this giant Goliath is stood before him dressed like a giant snake. So da and David is going out. I think Goliath actually sort of um, retorts to him, you know, have you come out here to tame me? David is going out to tame the giant snake dressed like a humble shepherd. That's some powerful imagery going on there. Talk about a picture of human weakness in the face of overwhelming strength, in, in the face even of demonic strength. But God is about to turn that strength on its head. In, in fact, he's in this episode about to turn human history itself on its head. Remember back in Eden, Adam was charged with ruling over the beasts, but he was deceived by one of the beasts. He was overcome by the snake. Years later on the borders of the promised land, a rescued Israel were charged by God to go in and defeat the giants that were there in the land. But they gave in to fear and they were sentenced to 40 years in the wilderness. And now centuries later, Right in the middle of 1 Samuel, God's terrified people have endured not 40 years, but 40 days of being taunted by a descendant of those giant enemies all over again. And it looks like they're facing yet another tragic defeat, except this time there's one key difference. God's chosen king is there to fight for them. He steps forth alone onto the battlefield, going in the Lord's strength to defeat the giant snake. And how does he defeat the mighty Goliath? With a single blow to the head. It's the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise God made in Genesis 3.15. He said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And so here's, here's why they need a king. Here's what the king is doing. David, the Lord's seemingly weak and unprotected king, bruises and crushes the head of Goliath the snake securing the victory for all of those weak and powerless people that David is out there representing as their king. Now, Goliath isn't the ultimate serpent, of course, but David's victory again points us forward to the ultimate victory of the even more powerless-looking Christ, who would one day go into battle naked and unarmed and seemingly powerless upon a cross. And on that day, it looked like the mighty strength once again of sin and Satan and death had won.
God's anointed king was seemingly overcome. But then the Lord fulfilled Hannah's prayer, ultimately in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God made him alive as Hannah prayed and raised him from the grave. He seated Jesus on a throne of honor. Jesus, the son of David, was brought lower than Hannah, lower than David, lower than you and I could ever be brought. But then God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So God turned the whole world upside down and on its head. Truly in Christ, the bows of the mighty were broken so that through Christ, the feeble might bind on strength. It's that lot, it's that, so it's that great strength reversal along with that great height reversal that's foreshadowed repeatedly throughout the pages of 1 Samuel. Nothing is in this book by accident. I'm sure we've seen many more things as well. It's all there intended by God to point us to our ultimate king, to Christ. Well, we'll get into groups in just a moment to share more of what we found together. But just before we do that, how might we sum up then the lesson of 1 Samuel for our lives? First and foremost, this book shows us that our ultimate hope should not be in human strength and stature. Whether it's our own strength and stature or our cultures or that of Saul-like celebrities and influencers and political leaders. Our ultimate hope should be in God alone and in the king that God himself provides. In Jesus, the serpent-crushing son of David, who by humbling himself to death on a cross was able to overcome and bring down the tallest, strongest foes of all, the most giant of all enemies, sin and Satan and death. So the message of 1 Samuel is primarily not be strong and stand tall like Saul. It's not that. Nor is it even primarily be a man of faith or a woman of faith like David. No, the message is look to and trust in the ultimate son of David, King Jesus. He's our champion in whom we have the victory. And he died in weakness and humility, but was raised in strength and might. He's the king each and every one of us needs. And yet then secondarily, 1 Samuel does also call us to behave in a certain way. Once we see that we're not David or Jesus, that's, that's always the best lesson to get, we're not David, we're not Jesus, but once we see that, it does call us to humble ourselves before the Lord like David, like Hannah, like Samuel, to call upon the Lord in all of our need, to, to not be self-righteous self and self-reliant as we see Saul being so many times through this book, but humbly admit our spiritual poverty and barrenness. This book is a call to put our trust in the Lord, to gladly and confidently put our trust in him again, day after day after day, trusting in Christ, our victorious King. No matter how great the forces are that oppose us, we can stand firm and full of faith in him, knowing that as Hannah prayed, he promises to raise the poor from the dust, to lift the needy from the ash heap, to make even weak, small and broken sinners like you and I, sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. That is the overarching message and the overture of 1 Samuel. Now is our opportunity uh, to talk about that and so much more that we, I'm sure we've discovered in its pages as well.